Welcome to Writers on Writing. I'm your host, Marie Stone. Today, I welcome back A.J. Jacobs, author of The Puzzler, One Man's Quest to Solve the Most Baffling Puzzles Ever, From Crosswords to Jigsaws to the Meaning of Life. We don't do a lot of nonfiction on the show, but A.J. is the one I can never resist. We talk about famous literary puzzlers, how puzzles helped him write this book, how adopting the puzzle mindset is good for your writing, and so much more. Enjoy the conversation. AJ, welcome back. I am so delighted to be back. As I said to you, this is one of my favorite shows to come on. And I don't say that to every podcaster. You can ask them. You can call (laughs) them up. So, but I just love talking to you. Well, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I love having you. So I have to tell you a quick story. Last year you were on, you were on exactly, almost exactly a year ago with your book about thanking everybody for your morning cup of coffee. And you alluded to this book then. So we were talking a little bit about the puzzler then. And you told me that your wife is the president of Watson Adventures, which is this Mm -hmm. scavenger hunt company. So as soon as we got off our Zoom call, I looked up Watson Adventures and signed myself up and recruited three of my smartest friends. One was a NASA scientist who works for JPL and navigates the rover on Mars and two other. Oh, that's a good teammate. Sure. We were so bad, really? AJ. We were so <laughs> bad. We came in, not only did we come in last, like we came in so last that like the organizer had to call our cell phone and say, you know, you guys are, just come back. Just stop. Stop doing this. <laughs> that is, well, you know what funny. the organi- the host always says that the, the team that comes in last is the one that had the best time. They savored it. So true. Uh, True. We had a great time. And uh, anyway, if you're if you're I, I forget all of the cities these are in, we did it in Hollywood, but so much fun, so much fun. And we were so bad. But I knew we were in trouble because all of the other teams showed up in like uniforms, like they all had matching oh. T-shirts and names like these guys were all in and they clearly, oh my goodness. clearly yes. made a life of this. Yeah. There are some passionate fans. Well, I'm glad you had a good time. And, uh, and yes, if you come back and then, uh, and I, maybe I can slip you some hints or something like that. Maybe, so uh, maybe I'll be you. better. Maybe I'll yeah, be better. I couldn't go. be worse. I couldn't be it's worse. All practice. <laughs> uh, thank you for supporting the whole Jacobs family. You're having me on and you uh, did my wife's uh, company. So thank you. You bet. So, so let's set the stage for the book again. And, and uh, I know we talked about this a little bit last time, but take us into it. Remind us how it came to be. I know you were working on another book when you birthed this one. So tell us a little bit about the puzzler and, and how it entered your consciousness. Sure. Yeah. As you say, I was working on a, a whole different book. I had a contract to write a book about the post-truth dilemma, you know, what is true and what do we know and how do we know it? How do I know the world is round? How do I know my wife loves me? So I was going to fact check everything I know. And I still think it's an interesting idea, but I was miserable for three months trying to figure out how to wrestle this into a book. And my agent saw my misery and said, well, why don't you just write a book about what you love which is puzzles. He knew that I was a puzzle head, puzzle fanatic. And I said, wow, that would be fantastic if they let me. So I came up with this idea to 
go around the world and solve every puzzle I could and, and explore every genre of puzzles from crosswords to jigsaws, as you say, Sudoku, Japanese to puzzle boxes. And my editor at Random House said, yes, that I think could work. So I switched and I had, as I, as I said last time, I think I didn't love the actual writing because I never loved sitting in a room alone writing without any feedback. Uh, but I loved the project. I loved going around, meeting people, solving puzzles, spending all day doing crosswords and, and calling it research. I'll tell you, this book is ruining my life because <laughs> I now I didn't even know about the New York Times spelling bee. <gasps> I paid my $40 and now that's all I do all day is oh, look for <laughs> no, I am. I feel terrible. Well, my one of my arguments is not a waste of time. Don't feel guilty that it is good for you. You're sharpening your brain. You're increasing your flexible thinking. So uh, so I'm not going to apologize for ruining your life. I'm going to uh, I'm going to be grateful that I introduced you to this. Uh, well, that's what I told myself. I mean, I, I do think there is something we can get into this in a minute, but I do think there is something, especially if you're writing, if you're doing some heavy mental lifting and especially writing, if you write a paragraph, you kind of need a little palate cleanser, right? Mm. To step away, view it with fresh eyes. And I think that the spelling bee is exactly the trick to take you away out of it and then bring you back into it. And you can, you know, look at it anew. <laughs> I love that. I love, and yeah, that is in, in writing and in solving puzzles, one of the key strategies that every expert I talk to mentioned. Yes, yeah, step away, step away, play a game take a nap and you'll come, but like you say, you'll come back with fresh eyes and a new perspective. And this is actually ancient wisdom, Leonardo da Vinci. He wrote a book about his painting process. And one of the key points was if you hit a snag, then step away, step away from the painting and then come back and you'll have, have solved it. See, see, I'm as smart as Leonardo da Vinci. <laughs> so you alluded to it, but we should kind of break down just so, so everybody knows how comprehensive this book is. There are, I don't know how many different kinds of puzzles. I should count this up really quickly, but I assume that when you approached it, you knew you were going to be exploring a dozen different kinds of puzzles. And then did you just kind of set out for each one and say, I'm going all in on jigsaws. I'm going all in on crosswords. Tell me a little bit about that, that structure of it. And then how you, how you started um, eating the elephant one bite at a time there. I love that image. I, uh, yes, it is a, I decided to weave in several strands. So I wanted a memoir of my love of puzzles. I wanted the adventures of going to the meeting the greatest puzzlers in the world and seeing these unsolved puzzles like uh, this one at the CIA headquarters or competing in the uh, World Jigsaw Puzzle Championships in Spain with my family and getting just uh, crushed by these professionals. I wanted some, the history puzzles and I wanted puzzles, of course. So I have lots of historical puzzles and this great puzzle maker Greg Pliska made new puzzles so there are 20 new puzzles and like you said I wanted to explore every genre of puzzles so my first love is crosswords but I went into riddles logic puzzles 
of Japanese puzzle boxes, just any, because there are so many, it's such a big category. And so I love doing that. I, I knew a bit about crosswords and can I tell the opening, uh, the way I sort of opened the book that gave it uh, a Yes, I love that story, yes. Oh, thank you. Well, yes, this was a few years ago, maybe seven years ago now. I had been a puzzle fan for all my life, but seven years ago, I was the answer to a clue in the New York Times crossword puzzle. And I figured this is the highlight of my life. You know, my my wedding and the birth of my kids was pretty good, but this is the holy <laughs> grail, New York Times crossword puzzle. And then I got an email from my brother-in-law who did congratulate me. I want to make sure that that's out there, but he also pointed out that I appeared in the Saturday New York Times crossword puzzle. And if you know crossword puzzles, you know that they get harder and harder throughout the week. Monday is the easiest. Saturday is so hard. It's filled with obscure clues no one is supposed to know. So his point was, this is not a compliment. This is proof that you're totally obscure and no one knows who you are. So then I was crushed. I was like, you know, he has a point there. But then the twist is I told that story on a podcast and one of the New York Times crossword makers was listening and decided to rescue me. And he put me in a Tuesday puzzle, which is not Monday, but it's still pretty good Tuesday, because that's <laughs> where real famous people like Lady Gaga or Joe Biden, that's where they belong. So I totally did not belong. And he acknowledged that. He said all the other clues around me had to be super easy so that people could get it. But that was the true highlight of my life. So I start off with that anecdote and how I've loved crosswords and puzzles all my life. And then I launch into my adventures in every genre. There's a um, even longer story that I heard you tell with, you were interviewed by David Kwan, my favorite, the enigmatist, right? He was- Oh yeah, you like him too? Yeah, I have you had him. him on your show? No, but I saw the enigmatist. My husband's a magician, so he's just a, he's, I'm a huge fan of his. But you were telling me that there was like a whole little block of the puzzle written around you right? Yes. The, it's crazy. It was crazy. It was the theme, you know, the crosswords often have themes. So the theme was actually me. It was the quote I gave on the podcast, how I'll be a loser, or I think I said a five letter word starting with LOS and ending with ER uh, until I appear in a Monday or Tuesday crossword. And that was actually an answer in the crossword puzzle was that whole quote. And I was remember doing the crossword at 10 o'clock. It comes along online at, at 10 or 10.01 PM. And I'm right there. And I was doing it. I was sitting next to my son and I said, something very strange is happening. And I, I thought someone had played a trick on me and hacked into my computer and put up a fake New York Times crossword puzzle. But then I got an email from a friend saying, wait, did you see the crossword puzzle? And I was so freaked out that it took, it was a Tuesday puzzle, which I can usually do in about 15, 10, 15 minutes. This took me like an hour and a half because I just was so frazzled from the experience. But yeah, it was, uh, it was wild and delightful. So thank you to Peter Gordon. He's the constructor who did it. I love this. And I hope you pointed out to your brother-in-law that he's in 
probably zero crossword puzzles. Not even, <laughs> not even Saturday. <laughs> That's true. He is actually a very interesting guy. So, uh, and he is, uh, he has been on some, he was on Fox News once and he shut down the Fox News host, Neil Cavuto, and it went viral. Oh, so he okay. has his own, uh, yeah. All uh, right. He's an interesting guy. So as you mentioned, there's several threads in here. So there's puzzles, there's the history of puzzles, there's puzzle trivia, but there are all these kind of bigger philosophical metaphors about the puzzle mindset and how you can, you know, as we said, use it to solve world problems or personal problems and connect with each other. And there are also all of these little political asides. My favorite one, which might not be your favorite one, is that you, <laughs> you make a small reference to Putin but because the book was written a few years ago, you know, you just don't like his policies on gay marriage and voter suppression. So I was thinking, you know, how how quickly our world is changing yeah, under our that, feet. And that you know. is so funny. You noticed that because I that chapter was actually excerpted in Men's Health magazine and we changed we changed it to add the Ukraine war. But yeah, you're right. Books are on such a slow scale that it is, which is why I'd mostly tried to keep politics out of it. You know, plus I I want part of the thesis of the book is that puzzles can unite us. So I didn't want it to be too partisan. I wanted to try to encourage everyone to do puzzles because I do think that they are a force for good and for unification. So, but yeah, that one, I think almost everyone in America can agree Putin is a horrible person. So I felt felt okay saying that. You're on safe ground, I think. Yeah. <laughs> But uh, yeah, and the world is shifting under our feet so, so, so fast. But I was wondering, you know, with kind of keeping all of those, those balls in the air, because you could get, I could get derailed really easily and, you know, going down some really esoteric rabbit hole about the history of something. But you, so you had to, you had to keep the balancing act going of, I want a little history. I want a little philosophy. I want a little puzzling. Mm. And I was wondering, you know, is that just kind of in your writerly sense and you don't have to think about it too much? Or did you have to say, okay, I've got, you know, I got too much memoir here, not enough puzzling there. You know, I got to pull myself back on track. Oh, I love that question. Well, I remember when I wrote my first book, which was about the, reading the encyclopedia, and I was trying to weave in several similar strands. So memoir, also the craziest, most fascinating stories from the encyclopedia, and also adventures like going on Who Wants to Be a Millionaire, and even the history of encyclopedias and reference books. So I had four or five strands. And I remember I wrote, I bought multicolored index cards and I wrote, I, you know, red was for memoir, yellow was for fascinating stories from the encyclopedia. And I remember I plotted it out on a huge cork board and made sure that all of the colors were alternating enough and that you didn't have a huge block of pink uh, and, and nothing sprinkled in between. But I, since then, most of my books have had a similar weaving together of strands, but I haven't done that method. I guess I internalized it a little, but it definitely took practice because it is hard. You have to have a bird's eye view, which I think is an important part of any writing. Like you have to think like a, a reader Oh, you have to try to wipe your mind clean and think, what is the reader's experience while reading this? And are they getting too much of one thing? Oh, and 
not to ramble on, but I read um, Chuck Palahniuk's book on writing. I don't know if you've had him on. Oh, no, no, I don't think so. It was very interesting. Uh, I mean, I don't, I don't read him religiously, but uh, uh, he's obviously super talented. And one of his big points was you've got to mix up the different types of writing. And he referred to a slightly different type of mixing up. He talked about, you know, there's the, um, the descriptive. And then I believe he had the, um, it was uh, sort of uh, instructions, like almost like a recipe, like you, you would have a block and saying, you know, here's how to infiltrate a uh, self-help group. And, and he would actually have instructions. So, and then there was a third type that I can't remember, but it was, he very clearly thinks about different forms that you can take, like put a list in to break up the text because people like to, just like in music where you, you have the, the hook and you, you need different types of writing, different types of formats to break up the, uh, the book. Well, you don't need to, but some people yeah. like to, and I like to. I'm going to have to explore that more. I, I think that. he'd make an interesting uh, interview. Yeah. yeah, he would. So as you do each of the chapters, I now see there are 18 different kinds of puzzles and you have all of these different strands going. Did you think of each of these chapters sort of as a standalone thing that, okay, I'm going to you know dive into just this. I'm going to kind of find metaphors, their own metaphors, my own way of, of memoiring it, and then um, <laughs> move on to, you know, uh, because there wasn't a ton, there was, there, I guess there were a little bit of crosstalk between the chapters, not a ton, right? but I don't know if they were, you know, kind of standalone projects, each one. Well, that's a good question. Yeah. I usually in my books, I try to mix so that it's a little bit standalone and a little bit woven through with an arc. So the arcs in previous books have been, for instance, uh, you know, my wife and I trying to have a kids or um, yeah, my, my grandfather dying. This one, I, I think, is a little more modular. I do try to have some of an arc about, like we discussed, discovering why I love puzzles and how can they make me better and what is the meaning of life? I'm not sure I solved the meaning of life, but I tried. <laughs> so uh but yeah, I also wanted it to be, so if you, if for some reason you hate Sudoku, I still hope you'll read the Sudoku chapter because I think it's interesting even to those who don't like it, but it's also skippable if you want to go, if you, you love visual puzzles and you want to get to that ASAP. There are so many little, I read it with the eye when I wasn't doing all the puzzles in it, I was trying to read it with the eye of a writer and you have tons of little embedded writing advice in here, mm. um, which I'm sure uh, it was not lost on you. Certainly wasn't lost on me. And so I thought, you know, we could, we could call out some of that. And one of them was finding a toehold into a puzzle, which I think is true of finding a toehold into your book. But you had talked about when you're working on an article or maybe when you're working on the book, you start with the easiest section to write you know, the, either the most vivid anecdote or the most crucial quote, and then you build out. And that was useful. That was useful, oh, both, both in my crosswording, oh, which I've yes. taken up again now. And oh, good. Uh, <laughs> so which one do you just, uh, what are you in New York Times, Los Angeles Times? What's your, 
Right. You got me, you got my $40 for the um, New York Times games to get into the spelling bee. So now I have oh, access to the, uh, I didn't know my New York Times subscription did not give me access to the games, but it did, you know, it did not. Oh, I know they are. Yeah. They they're, are making they're, money. They're over greedy. There. They're greedy. That's okay. <laughs> <laughs> I can't make it past Wednesday on the crossword, but I'm going I'm to work up to it. <laughs> it's yeah, it's definitely a language and I, I could be there for a long time, but you will, you will. Um, yeah. I love that. That uh, works for puzzles. It works for almost any problem. Find that one area where you can get a wedge in a toehold and then build out. And like you said, when I'm trying to write, I just, I almost make a list of, you know, here are five things in the chapter I know are really vivid and interesting and I want to include. I don't know where or how, but let me start with those. And then I can either write up a couple of paragraphs on this vivid anecdote of, you know, meeting Gary Kasparov or whatever, and then build an outline, or I can try to arrange you know, here are five bit of anecdotes. What makes what makes sense for arranging them that tells a story and that flows and that reaches some sort of you know, climax? And so that I found, I'm glad you find it helpful because I I use it all the time in writing. Well, there this book is so heavily researched and so heavily interviewed. And so I, I was kind of curious about that too, if you say, okay the topic is crosswords. I'm first going to start by finding all the crossword gurus that will talk to me and contact them and do the research first ahead of time and all the interviews ahead of time, and then kind of see what, what I've accumulated in my nest to work with. Yeah, um, exactly. That is exactly. Okay. What I'm, and not just interviews, but also lots of reading of books or, or Googling and, and even research like looking on message boards for funny insights. Uh, I quote a few people from puzzle message boards, uh, but I do feel a little guilty because I, you know, I would say for every four people I interview, only one of them is actually quoted in the book or as part of a scene in the book. All of them are in the acknowledgments. So I thank them and I always call and apologize and say, try to send them a free copy. But for the reader, I can't include everything or else they'd be bored out of their minds. So I've got to take the ones who have the best stories and, and feature them. And sure. again, I feel guilty. I feel guilty about it, but otherwise the book, <laughs> the book would be like 8,000 pages long. Right. And how do you know when you've kind of gotten to the bottom of the rabbit hole? Because I feel like, you know, <laughs> it's infinite. <laughs> <laughs> that is so true. Yeah, I don't think I do. I don't think I do get to the bottom of the rabbit hole. It keeps going. I think you have to. Well, I talked about this in, in the essay I sent you, but I could have gone on researching this for 10, 12 years because there is so much fascinating stuff. And I happen to love the topic. Uh, but at some point you have to have the discipline to say, okay, maybe there's a better story out there that I didn't get. And, but I, I got to stop, I got to write it or else it'll never come out. And it is funny. There were some stories that I wish I could have, well, first of all, Wordle, Wordle was hilarious because we had closed the book about two weeks before Wordle exploded and <laughs> Uh, I kept thinking, oh, this is, you know, I love people are getting into puzzles. 
the you know wordle itself will kind of go away but it did not go away <laughs> so we had to we had to i begged my editor and said we got to open up the book and at least get wordle in there somehow so we opened it back up uh and i think it cost money uh, and we got the word wordle in so it literally in the intro it says truthfully at night i do the new york times crossword puzzle and wordle so that is my coverage of wordle in the book but now if someone says oh so did you get wordle in there i was like yeah yeah i address wordles <laughs> but then i confess immediately it's just the one word uh, we have every other type of puzzle but yeah so you can never you've got the rabbit hole as you say goes it's an infinite it's infinite rabbit holes but so you've got to have the discipline to say no i'm gonna i i have to start writing since you brought up wordle what do you attribute the craze of that to i mean i do it too i'm i'm also addicted and i and i really resisted it because anytime something becomes popular i'm like i'm not doing that i'm not mm, but I like the rebelliousness but it is it is crazy how much that puzzle took off. And I, I keep trying to dig into the psychology of, of why that is. Yeah. Well, I would say uh, a few reasons come to mind. One, it's, it's rationed. So you only have, you can only do it once a day. So uh, you can't get stuck uh, doing it and get sick of it. Yeah. It's a great puzzle. It's, it's very friendly. I feel it's a friendly puzzle. It's like Tom Hanks. It's, uh, you know, it's not mean. It's, and it's got those nice green and yellow. I think that it was a lovely, especially in the pandemic, this unifying phenomenon. And it was, uh, I remember my Twitter feed is usually filled with vitriol and uninformed opinion. But then all of a sudden it had all of these yellow and green weird posts from both sides of the, you know, my conservative friends and my liberal friends were just posting it. So I loved that it had that. And actually Josh Wordle, the inventor, talked, I went to the American Crossword Puzzle Tournament, which was a, a couple of weeks ago. And he, that was one of his themes that he loves is that it's a unifying phenomenon. And he talked about a, a gay man who had been ostracized from his family and Wordle was the activity that brought them together that hmm. that uh, his mom and dad started talking to him because they all did Wordle together and actually I don't have that anecdote in the book but I do have there is actual research that when you are trying to unify or liberals and conservatives uh, or stop them from throttling each other one of the best ways is to have them do a puzzle together. Hmm. Yeah, that was one of the enduring themes here. And um, actually, you know, the the subtitle of the book, One Man's Quest to Solve the Most Baffling Puzzles Ever from Crosswords to Jigsaws to the Meaning of Life. I don't know when that little subtitle came to you, but <laughs> I thought how useful subtitles are for writers to give you a place to keep pointing your arrow you know, mm. and is stay back here, stay back here. And, and so that, you know, the meaning of life and those kind of bigger questions that are peppered throughout the book, I thought, you know, once you had that in your mind, you could keep bringing your mind back to, okay, it's, it's, you know, it's time to remind our readers that puzzles are a way to bring us together in politically charged times or whatever the meaning of life was for you. I love that. Yeah. I came up with that 
maybe a little before the, the midpoint of writing it, because originally it was just to solve the hardest puzzles ever, crosswords to jigsaws. But then I thought, well, I wanted to have a deeper meaning because I do think puzzles have a deeper meaning. And I had a list of other phrases because the meaning of life is kind of silly because, you know, of course it's not going to answer. A book is not going to answer the ultimate meaning of life. But I liked so the the ambition of it and and hoped people would take it like, you know, yes, they're not going to get the ultimate answer. But to me, part of the answer is just searching and curiosity, which is, again, one of the big themes. My two favorite emotions are gratitude and curiosity. And my last book was about gratitude. And this one is about curiosity. So that to me is the meaning. But like you said, it was, I love the way you put it. It was sort of this guiding principle that I could always go back to the subhead and say, okay, this is what my book is about. My guest today is immersion journalist, AJ Jacobs, author of The Puzzler. A quick reminder that if you found this interview or some of our other interviews useful or inspiring, if you've enjoyed the conversations, if you like hearing the backstories behind the books, consider becoming a patron of the show. You can visit www.patreon.com backslash writers on writing, all one word. There are four levels of support to choose from, and each one offers various perks and goodies. It's our way of staying in touch with you and an easy way for you to support our commercial-free programming that we do every week. Again, that's on Patreon, Writers on Writing. On with the show. I love that you brought up curiosity because that was another enduring theme for, and and I think enduring theme for writers, which is, you know, (laughs) when you sit down with the the feeling of dread with the blinking Mm. cursor and you think this is impossible to turn your mindset into one of curiosity, I wonder what these characters, you know, not that they're impenetrable, but I just wonder what makes them tick and you become curious about it. I think that puzzle mindset, that curiosity mindset really is useful to switch you out of your writer's block head and into a questioning head. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, I love that. And I quote, one of my favorite interviews was when I interviewed, um, not for this book, but for Esquire magazine, I interviewed Alex Trebek. And I may actually have mentioned this on our previous interview, but he had a quote that I still think about all the time and I love. It doesn't quite make sense. It's a little paradoxical, but he said, I'm curious about everything, even those things that don't interest me. And I said, you know what? I totally resonate with that. I am interested in everything, even something that could be seen as so mundane, which is what I did for the coffee, but you know, how how water gets from the reservoir to our tap. Maybe that sounds boring, but it is filled with drama and heroism and and unexpected twists and turns. So yes, I am a fan of curiosity for everything, even those things that are on the surface mundane. Well, I do think curiosity is a contagious emotion. And Mm. I think that's probably the writer's job, right? Is to convey their curiosity to the reader so that a subject you might not find interesting as the reader you're like hmm that's pretty that's pretty great and uh certainly this book did that I mean there were so many one of my favorites was Leonardo da Vinci's Last Supper if you look at the bread loaves 
it makes a song. I didn't know that. I mean, yes. <laughs> and you can hear the song on the internet. Uh, yeah. And my friend who's an art historian who's very skeptical of other hidden messages in the Da Vinci Code. He doesn't believe in the Da Vinci Code, but he said he does believe this one, that this was sort of a hidden song. And yeah, I, I love that you say that. That's such a huge compliment because I too was very excited when I was writing these passages and I, I'm so glad that it came through. And a lot of them were about puzzle types that I had no interest in before, like puzzle Japanese puzzle boxes. I, I, first of all, I'm very bad at spatial reasoning. And these are all about figuring out how to crack open this, these beautiful wooden boxes using spatial reasoning. But I became so enchanted by it, by talking to all of these eccentric people who spent their lives and sometimes thousands of dollars on these little wooden boxes. It really does help when you have enthusiasm for the topic. But uh, again, I do think that the enthusiasm comes when you start to research and dig deeper. So even I've often thought it would be an interesting challenge to write about something seemingly boring, like accounting is the prototypical boring topic, <laughs> right? But I'm sure that if you dive in a little, accounting is not boring. I mean, it's not just abstract numbers. It's numbers that represent people's life work and passions and fights. And so accounting to me, I don't think I'm going to do it because I don't think Random House would <laughs> publish <laughs> my year as an accountant. Uh, but I do think it would be an interesting challenge to make it a fascinating book. And I think I would at least have a shot at it. I love that whole chapter on on the puzzle boxes. There was somebody, I can't remember who it was, a screenwriter who who made a desk out of a oh, puzzle yeah. box and wrote his screenplays on it. Right. This is one of my favorite uh, little stories was Darren Aronofsky, the director of Pi and many other. He loves puzzles. And so he hired this great puzzle box maker in Colorado to make the ultimate puzzle desk. He wanted a desk that contained dozens of puzzles. And it was actually like a, an Aronofsky movie itself because the puzzle box creator spent four years making this desk and almost went insane. He said he stopped seeing friends. He stopped doing his hobbies and just obsessed about the desk. And it came out and it is a thing of uh, a wonder. It is all of these, and you have to move these little slats and, uh, and twist and turn things. So it actually takes quite a while to open a drawer, like even if you know how. So it's, it's not the most practical desk if you want to get out a, uh, a stapler, because uh, <laughs> it probably take 45 minutes. But of course, Darren Aronofsky said it was an incredibly inspiring desk because here he was writing on something that was so creative and so twisty and turny that it inspired him in his screenplays. And I love that. I, I maybe, maybe I should get a desk that has some, that's a, a work of art. Maybe that would improve my writing. I don't know. What do you think? I think you we think? should both do that. Yeah. I All think right. we, should, we should definitely get a $65,000 desk to 
(laughs) (laughs) Well, I was wondering if, I mean, there are a lot of examples here of writers. Lewis Carroll is probably the best example, but if you saw a connection between either writers or screenwriters, other creatives and their love of puzzles, I think Tolkien was another one that you mentioned in here. Oh, yeah. I mean, the Venn diagram between writers and, and literature and puzzles is it's got a huge middle section. So you have, first of all, Stephen Sondheim, who's not a book writer, but certainly a wordsmith. He was obsessed with puzzles and he actually created puzzles and had a big part in crossword puzzle history because he he touted these British crossword puzzles that are full of wordplay and puns and anagrams and homophones and crosswords have gotten more wordplay-ish over the years so he was a huge fan Nabokov Nabokov I I did learn it from my audio book and now I can't remember which is right I can't either (laughs) I know I always screw it up too I just read it I don't say it yeah okay yeah me too but he was a huge fan of puzzles he made crossword puzzles in Russian he also created chess puzzles, which is a special kind of puzzle. But he wrote a whole book called Poems and Chess Problems. I Actually, something along those lines. It was about yeah. poems and chess. And he wrote that composing a chess puzzle, he said, and I'm paraphrasing, paraphrasing but he said it, it is it contains all the elements of great literature, the, the element of surprise and suspense and having to, I can't remember the other ones. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. It was right. all about a, a structure and, and and all of this. So I love that. And, and Sondheim said something similar about a great crossword clue that contains the elements of a great story, conflict and resolution. So yeah, puzzles to me are very linked to story. And of course, words, I, you know, there's, there's basically two big categories of puzzles, you could argue. There's the word puzzles and then the math and logic puzzles. Word puzzles are my true first love. And they are so linked to writing because I became so much more aware of the words I'm using and all of the different meanings of those words. Because when when you're tackling a hard crossword puzzle, the whole point is you've got to look at the words from a different angle. You've got to look, consider every possibility. You know, if, if the word is trunk, is it an elephant trunk? Is it the trunk of a torso? Is it the a trunk of luggage? So you become very attuned to the different meanings of words. And I found that incredibly helpful in my writing. Yeah. The spelling bee is teaching me more words than I possibly oh. knew we're out there and it's fun you know and then you yeah. have to look it up and you're like what does that mean and you I, you know I can justify playing eight hours a day of spelling bee all day <laughs> <laughs> it's research and what it's research what, yeah what words have you learned I'm trying to think of what words I've uh I've learned from the spelling bee I yes. know what word oh go ahead well this is so stupid but I didn't know Listen, I mean, I've always known illicit. I use illicit's one of my favorite words, but mm. I never really knew licit, which is so funny because. Right. That is a great point. Yeah. Well, it's sort of like inept and apt. Often, you know, licit is definitely more on the apt side. Right. I also talk about, I did not know this word, raffia, R A F, I think it's two F's, R A F I A. 
which is a because you don't wrap a lot of uh, presents. (laughs) That's probably the problem. My wife is such a good wrapper that I don't. uh, Yeah, I uh, I don't even dare. But Rafia is uh, the editor of the spelling bee did not know that word and did not include it in his list of allowed words. And it was a scandal. People were pissed. So, yeah, there is. I love I love the puzzle the Fuhrer because <laughs> it's so low stakes, but at the same time, it's so fun. Right. Right. Yeah. I think chink wasn't in there the other day. And I thought, you know, like a chink in your armor. Right. And, uh, and then I thought there was something uh, you included in this book about how puzzle makers have become much more sensitive around proper language and PC issues and all the things they should be. And so I thought maybe they left it out because it was a derogatory term at some point. And it's off the table, even though it has another meaning. I believe I that's true. I okay. believe that's true. Yeah. 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 They, you have to be aware nowadays. And, and there is actually a big movement in crosswords about diversity. And it is controversial because it's political. But there's uh, a, a 600 crossword makers sent, uh, signed a petition to the New York Times urging them to hire uh, more diverse crossword makers, and also to have more diverse clues. So yeah, wh- whatever that may be, d- the different cultural clues instead of just you know, what opera and uh, and classic rock. Uh, and I do think they the Times addressed it. They hired some editors of color, and and I do notice in there a lot more clues about various. Uh, more more timely and, and uh, diverse cultures. So I think it did have an impact. Which is the same movement that's going on in the writing community too, right? We want to hear more voices and, and uh, yeah, expand our cultural conversations and all of that. So, right, yeah, right. yeah. And I love the link of humor and puzzles. And I do think, I mean, you're such a funny guy. So I, you know, I'm sure all of these things play across both your writing, your puzzling and your, your living. But you probably can become a little bit more funny punny, I suppose, by doing some of these puzzles. <laughs> right. Well, there's two types. I mean, there's puns, which I actually was never a huge fan of puns. I, be, I yeah. came to respect puns more because they are such a huge part of puzzling. And partly it's because what I was saying before, it, it makes you much more aware of how slippery language can be and how one word can mean tons of things like the word freedom. You say freedom and automatically it has a, this uh, patina of, uh, of greatness, but freedom can mean hundreds. It's got hundreds of meanings. So you got to be careful when you read that word. Uh, but then there's also the element of surprise, which is what unites jokes and puzzles. And one of the people featured in the book is Mike Reese, who is a longtime writer for The Simpsons. And he has been there the whole time. And he talks about the structure is very similar, that a joke is you leave something out and the reader has to, the listener has to fill that in. And it's a puzzle. So the example he gives is a skeleton walks into a bar and orders a beer and a mop. (laughs) He says, I'll have a beer and a mop. And yeah, so when I heard that, I paused. I was like, I don't get it. And then it took me about three seconds. I'm like, oh, I get it. Because he's going to go through his, <laughs> it's going to be on the floor. He has to mop it up. 
So that is an example of a joke slash puzzle. And, and not all jokes are puzzles, but a lot of them are. You have to figure out what's missing and supply it. And that's where the delight and surprise and laughter comes in. There was an enduring kind of motif throughout this, which I, I also thought was, was kind of useful in the writing life, which is the question mark, the arrow, and the exclamation point. And I thought, you know, if you, if you draw that onto your little computer, that can be kind of a guiding principle for writing as well. But you, you kind of start with these big questions, puzzling questions. You go through the process. These aha moments are exactly the pleasure of reading, right? I mean, right. when you read a novel and, and you remember a clue that was dropped 200 pages ago and mm. you're like, oh, I'm smart. you know. <laughs> I yeah, agree I totally. I love that. It's a, yeah, those three symbols, question mark, forward arrow, exclamation point was the way that this famous puzzler summed up all puzzles. His name is Maki Kaji. He was called the godfather of Sudoku who died recently. But he, uh, I thought it was great. And like you said, it's not just for puzzles. I mean, so much of art is the question mark, forward arrow, exclamation point. You know, that's the, the arc of many fiction stories. You get there, you're in a baffling situation and then you work through it and then the, the conflict is the arrow and then the resolution is the exclamation point. So yeah, it's super helpful. I also think one of his points was you have to enjoy the arrow. You have to relish the forward arrow. Sometimes you never even get to that exclamation point, but you have to love the solving. And I think that's true for storytelling too. Like the joy can't just be in the first act and the third act of a movie. You've got to have a strong second act, which is the struggle. And that's got to be entertaining and interesting as well. That damn arrow, that elusive <laughs> damn arrow. <laughs> it's so true, but it's important. It's important. Yes. I have like eight pages so uh, of notes here. So I'm going to, I'm going to rapid fire you with some of the mm. other brilliant things you said writing wise, certainly, and we talk about this a lot on the show that how important constraints are to creativity, that the blank page is just a nightmare. Mm. So you have to, you know, just like with puzzling, you have to find constraints around, put constraints around you so that you can expand your mind. I don't know if you have any examples of that in this book that helped you out that there was a point in this where you were flailing or you were, well, like you say, constraints to me are everything. I like a blank page. If someone said, write a book, whatever you want, that would be very stressful. So I love having a very um, constrained structure. So for my first book, which was about reading the encyclopedia, I loved having it. It had to be chapter A, chapter B, chapter C, and chapter A had to feature ideas and concepts and stories that start with A and then B the same. And that constraint was so freeing paradoxically. And, and this one was also constrained. I said, here are the 20 types of puzzles I'm interested in. How do I fit the stories? And also the more philosophical flights of fancy, how, where can they go? And that constraint of having to put them in one of the chapters was, again, freeing and helpful. You had a quote in here from Orson Welles along the same lines about the enemy of art being the absence of, of limitations. And so, yeah, I think... Um no matter what art form you're working in. I had a chalk artist on once and he, mm. um, he looked for the flaws in the sidewalk and then he'd Ooh. make art around, you know, whatever the random crack was. And then he'd draw art around it. And, I love uh, that. That's yeah, a great, fun. yeah. 
And you interviewed Tina Fey one time who talked about be wary of the first thought that comes into your brain because your first thought is going to be your worst thought. Right. Um, yeah. Yeah. I always think about that because a lot of comedy writers do have that, that rule. That's in like an insult. They'll say that's, that's pretty first thought. And, uh, and I agree when I'm thinking of, say it's about Rubik's cube, I, I will brainstorm. I'll say, let me come up with like 20 thoughts about Rubik's cubes and what they mean to me and what they mean to the world. And, you know, 14 of them are going to be terrible and sort of obvious or cliched or wrong. So I think it's important yeah, to really dive deep, have a lot of thoughts and discard the weakest. Sometimes going with your first instinct is good. I don't want to say always discard it, but as a rule for me, first thought is often worst thought. Yeah. And I think especially especially for like mystery writers or something, whatever you, mm. whatever, I mean, your, your brain is just so trained on cliches, right? I mean, exactly. Right. Yes. I loved your section on labyrinths. So I go to this writer's retreat every now and then out in the mountains here, and they have a labyrinth there that, you know, it's just a bunch of stones in a circle and right. But the, the writers up there love labyrinths. I mean, that, that you know, is lovely. Did you try yeah, it? Have you yeah, done it? Yeah. I mean, it's tiny, you know, you could just, you could walk over it in like, you know, five seconds, but people <laughs> spend did, hours up there. I mean, they really so do. Inter- and did and you find it? Did you find it relaxing? And uh, it's, it's a good, figure? like meditative, you know, you don't have to give anything after you've gone through it a few times. Cause they're, they've hidden all these little, um, like there's a tiny frog on the bottom of this rock. So after you've found all the little hidden mm. things, you know, and you've distracted yourself, it's great to go up there. I mean, the, the place itself is, you know, it's for writing. So it's, it's meditative anyway, but it's, it's great to get yourself a little bit out of your own head in that kind of meditative state to, you know, think about what you're working on. Your thoughts go all over the place. And mm. I, well- I didn't know the difference between, Uh, labyrinths and mazes so yes well yeah neither did I and I got in trouble Uh, but it is a a huge distinction because like you say the the labyrinth at least according to labyrinth fans there is no choices you just go in through one path one sort of spiral path and then you go out and uh, you don't have to make any choices whereas a maze is a puzzle you have to know do I turn left do I turn right do I go straight and you get lost you get stressed and then you finally find your way out and the labyrinth people are hilarious because some of them at least are very anti-mazed they say maze labyrinths were created to to heal the trauma that mazes have caused to our psyche <laughs> uh, but I think I think what it relates directly to what we were saying before about constraints versus total freedom. And I think there's room for both uh, because labyrinths is a beautiful constraint. It is, you don't have a choice. You gotta walk in this one direction. And I, like you say, it can be meditative. It can be beautiful. You can really be mindful of the, the way the grass feels on your feet. And a maze is the opposite. Maze is all about freedom and tackling a challenge. Uh, and like I say, I, I like a balance between two. I like you know, both labyrinths and mazes. They both have their place. This corn maze that you encountered, uh, and there's a photograph. I should also mention throughout the book, in addition to all of these amazing puzzles and um, 
until last night when my final copy arrived, I was reading it on the on the computer, but there's this incredible pullout section of colored gorgeousness. Oh um, yeah, I'm super happy that they they suggested yeah. that. That was my editor, because a lot of these puzzles are beautiful and colorful. So there's a 16 page insert. So thank you. Yeah. Gorgeous. That looks expensive. <laughs> <laughs> I think so. I didn't have to pay. I'm so impressed with it. But in the, uh, I don't know if there's a color photo of this, but there is a photograph of this of this corn maze that you did that is unbelievable. And this guy who makes the maze, I think every year something changes it out so that if you have an aerial view of it, a drone's view, it's, it, you know, it was right. thinking our essential workers or something. I mean, it was really incredible. Oh yeah, it is. Again, he is, he considers himself an artist and uh, because yeah. there are corn mazes that you can do just from sort of a computer program, but he's, he designs them and they have a theme. So it could be thanking the essential workers. It could be dinosaurs, what have you. But he is hilarious because he is a, a gleeful, very a delightful, but a, a gleeful sadist. He loves <laughs> that this is a really hard maze. He talks about people crying, couples arguing, a father who abandoned his wife and kids because he was so frustrated and couldn't deal. So some people like that. They want to be frustrated because they want that payoff when you do get out. Like, you know, the more frustration, the, the bigger the payoff. So uh, it, it was a delightful chapter uh, to research. And, and it took me, yeah, over, took me over four hours to solve it. And I was, uh, yeah, I was getting nervous. I was going to be stuck in there like the, uh, with the Minotaur. And doesn't he kind of stand over the, you know, he gets high above and kind of laughs at you while you're doing right. it? Right. Yeah. That's he's nice. like a godlike <laughs> creature. He has a platform and he watches people as they make their way through the maze. And he says it's a lesson in, in human nature that sometimes, especially young men, he says, will go down a corridor and it's a dead end. And then they'll come back and do the same thing over and over again because they feel they have to be right. This has to be the way. And that is one of the big lessons of puzzles for life is cognitive flexibility. You know, be humble, know that you could be wrong. Don't get attached to uh, your own hypothesis. Which is true in, which is again, I'll say it again, true in writing as well, right? A hundred percent. I mean, yeah. that was another big metaphor. I said, writing the book was like a jigsaw puzzle. I, I was, that made it for me much more exciting to write uh, and viewing it as a puzzle as opposed to some sort of chore or, or Herculean task. It's a puzzle and I'm going to solve it's a puzzle. it. And you also talked about delusional optimism is necessary for, for both. And uh, yeah, I think that's, that's something else to, uh, to keep in mind. So right. you sent, you sent me a, a great article this morning and I just want to give that a call out for writers because it's useful. Remind me where it is and where people can it's find It's in that. Book Page magazine, which features new books, and a lovely magazine and reviews. Uh, and yeah, it's all about writing and puzzles and how I learned to see writing as a puzzle and how inspiring and motivating that was for me. I think it's encouraging to hear that somebody who looks like they're having so much fun on the page also hates it. So that's, that's nice. <laughs> 
<laughs> it is true. I have moments where I'm having fun and I'm in the zone. But yeah, the majority of the time it is it is work. Is there uh, is there advice we should have mentioned that we that we left out or anything that jumps no, out at you? I love I well, I do have one other small thing, which is in terms of marketing. I'm always trying to see marketing as a creative endeavor instead of as just this task that I'm somehow above as a writer. So I'm super excited about this little marketing plan, which is that I have embedded a secret code in the introduction. And if you put that secret code into the puzzlerbook.com website, then it opens up into this amazing collection of dozens, 22 puzzles that were created by these brilliant professional puzzle makers. And if you solve those and get to the speed round, the first to win the speed round gets $10,000. So I took that out of my advance. Uh, I, I hope I'll make it back. But even if I don't, I love that I've introduced people to these amazing puzzles. And by the way, you, the lawyers want me to stress this. You don't have to buy the book to participate. <laughs> The code is in the introduction, which is available for free on the puzzlerbook.com. You have to be US 18 and over. I, I was inspired by one of my favorite books growing up, which was called Masquerade, which was a, a book by a British artist. And he hid clues to a golden treasure, a rabbit, a golden rabbit buried somewhere in England. So it's similar. It's not buried, but it is buried under puzzles. Don't dig up people's yards to solve exactly. this puzzle. Yeah. I put my daughter onto this. Yeah. I, uh, oh, I said, here, why don't you use your your time where you should be studying for finals <laughs> to solve these puzzles? <laughs> there you go. I love it. <laughs> oh, AJ, I always love these conversations. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I hope you're hard at work on, on the next one so we get to do this again soon. I am looking for my, if, if any of listeners have suggestions, please email me through my website. And uh, I would love to hear because I haven't chosen it yet. It's a puzzle, but I I'm going to crack it. You have a website separate and apart. So, so the puzzler.com is the website for this book and folks can find you. I think it's just ajjacobs.com. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. And, and it's the puzzlerbook.com. Sorry. The yes. The no, that's all right. Yes. I'm sure the puzzler is a good site too, but. We can wrong. also follow you on Facebook, which I've been doing for the past year. So I got to see a lot of these puzzles as they were, um, oh, you, yeah. you had a puzzle, an, in, a generational infinity puzzle made for, for you. So I got to see the unveiling of that. And so that's, that's all fun too. So. Yeah, please do. Uh, friend me on Facebook. I would love it. Uh, well, it was always, it was a joy. I was looking forward to it and it didn't disappoint. So thank you again for having me back. That's my line. Thank you so much. Congratulations again. Thank you. That was A.J. Jacobs. The book is The Puzzler, One Man's Quest to Solve the Most Baffling Puzzles Ever, From Crosswords to Jigsaws to the Meaning of Life. That's all the time we have for today. As always, music and sound design was provided by Travis Barrett. You can find us online at our websites. Barbara's is penonfire.com. Mine is mariestone.com. Of course, we are now on Patreon. And uh, we are offering little gifts and goodies to all of you who support the show. You can visit us at Patreon, search for Writers on Writing for a modest 
little amount donation each month. We provide writing tips, writing advice, different things. You can see all of the different levels up there that we offer. Thanks for supporting the show. Thanks for listening. Have a great, great day.